I was listening to a podcast by a guy, and he was talking about how he had pain in his shoulder. So as a result of having pain in his shoulder, he went to go see a doctor. And you know doctors ask a lot of questions before giving you the diagnosis. And in this situation, the doctor was asking a lot of questions about his shoulder pain. You know, questions like, how did you hurt your shoulder? How long have you been experiencing this pain? What have you done to remedy this? And the guy was getting a little impatient and slightly irritated. There was a lot more questions going. And so the guy with the hurt shoulder started to amuse himself by counting how many questions there were. The doctor asked him 21 questions. And after 21 questions, the doctor gave him a diagnosis. It seemed actually pretty simple and trite. And the guy with the hurt shoulder said, When did you think you had the diagnosis for my shoulder? And the doctor said, Oh, after I asked you the first question. Questions. In this passage, there's 13 of them. Not quite 21. And people are still asking questions about Jesus and who he is. Is he the Christ? Are the authorities starting to believe in him? We're about halfway through John's gospel and the persecution and hatred and opposition towards Jesus is increasing. Last week we looked at the Feast of the Tabernacles part one and there we saw that Jesus' own brothers did not understand him. They misunderstood him. That the Feast of the Tabernacles is more prominent than the Pentecost and Passover. That people were really starting to get riled up against Jesus. And that division here in this passage continues again. With more questions. But we also learn that Jesus alone is the one who provides satisfaction through believing in him. We sometimes look in the wrong places for satisfaction. This passage is a reminder where to get it. That's through a living relationship with Christ. Start in the first verse. The first question, is this not the man they seek to kill? Jesus is preaching and teaching in the temple. And those listening to him know that others want to kill him and arrest him and seize him. Usually, if you know someone wants to arrest you or kill you, you you try to hide from them. But Jesus is not doing that. He's being bold, and he continues to preach and teach, even in the midst of opposition and criticism. The text actually says he preaches openly. That word openly doesn't just mean like in open air. It literally means confidence, boldness. Despite the whispering and muttering and insecure gossip going on behind the scenes, Christ stays strong and he proclaims the word of God with boldness and confidence. And the crowds are starting to wonder, is this the Christ? The word Christ appears several times in this passage and it's, it's not Jesus' last name. They didn't really have last names back then. There wasn't that many people that you needed three different names or, you know, first name, middle name, last name. They really just went by their first name or their title, first name, who your dad is. 
uh, where you're from, sort of like Simon, son of Jonah, or Judas of Iscariot, John the baptizer, saying, is this Jesus the Christ? Christ means deliverer or Messiah. It's a deliverer of the Israelite expectation from the Old Testament. You can remember in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies, prophecies of prediction that comes true. If you give a prophecy and it doesn't come true, the Bible says in the Old Testament to be, you need to be stoned, right? So you don't just want to go around predicting things, right? Divine prophecies that a Christ would come, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and through belief and trust in Him, sins can be forgiven, all sins, past, present, and future, and you can be part of the people of God and have a right relationship with God. So the Old Testament people, the Israelites, were waiting with eager anticipation for the Christ to arrive. We look back, they were looking forward. So they were waiting, and there was 400 years of waiting between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, a 400-year gap. There was these promises, these prophecies. God said he was going to do something. Where is he? He's delaying. He forgot. He's absent. He's never delaying. He's never absent. He has a perfect timing. And now is the time to send his son, the Christ. But the way Jesus appeared was surprising to people. They thought that this charismatic guy with a political agenda from money uh, was going to come on the scenes. But we see Jesus, it says in the Bible that there was no beauty or form that we should be attracted to him. And he came from small town, overlooked town, didn't come from money. He came in weakness and in meekness, and he was strictly concerned about the kingdom of God. People start to say, hey, is this, this Jesus that we know? Like, we know that he was a carpenter for a while. We know where he comes from. How can he be the Christ? Despite the criticism and ignorance from the crowd, Jesus continues to teach in the temple. Verse 28 says he proclaimed as he taught in the temple. That word proclaim there means to make a vehement outcry, to cry out, to scream. To communicate something with a loud voice. Once again, Jesus is teaching with boldness and confidence. There's an urgency besides his message. And so Jesus starts to answer some of the criticisms about him. People are saying, don't we know where you come from? Bethlehem, Nazareth. Jesus says, yes, you know where I come from or you think you do. But actually, my origin is God. I come from heaven. But since you don't know me and you don't know the Christ, you wouldn't know that. Jesus starts to tell them about that he's not just popped on the scene out of nowhere, but he's been sent by God on a rescue mission, uh, on a rescue mission to be the Christ, to deliver, to live perfectly, to die and rise again. And all this commotion is happening, and then suddenly there's these officers sent to arrest Jesus. But the text says that they could not, quote, because his hour had not yet come. Because his hour had not yet come. That expression happens a lot in John. Hour doesn't mean 60 minutes. 
She's trying to say the time for Jesus to be arrested, seized, and crucified is not yet. We're only in chapter 7. That happens later. So even when they stopped Jesus, they still couldn't stop him because it wasn't God's will. Every second, every word, every step of Jesus' life was ordained by God and under the fatherly protection of God. People couldn't touch him without God's permission. This introduces us to the teaching and of uh, God's providence. Perhaps you've heard this before, that God is sovereign, which means he's in control, but God is also good. The, the way to describe providence in a simple way is to say that God is continually involved in every aspect of your life, even the things that you might overlook. Like it says in Proverbs, the, that the rolling of a dice and the numbers that comes out is determined by God. That every single aspect of your life is under God's sovereign control, that he doesn't just allow things to happen, but he sends and ordains everything that comes to pass. And this is tremendously good news because it teaches that God is in control. And that God is good. He's not just in control, but he's a father to his children and works all things out for the good of those who believe in him. So if something hard happens or you feel overlooked, didn't get a job promotion, someone else got the job in front of you, you might grieve a little, but you can also understand that ultimately it just wasn't God's will and God's timing. When things go well, you can celebrate and enjoy. But there's no room for pride because ultimately you know it comes from God's hand anyway. Scripture teaches everywhere that God is sovereign and in control over every little thing that happens. This is cause for great news. This is even true of death and the length of our days. Listen to these two verses. Job 14.5 since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Can't live a single second beyond what God determines. This shouldn't make us fearful. This should actually do the opposite. It should entrust our lives to God. With health issues, with difficult days, with living in a pandemic. We should practice prudence by wearing a mask and putting on hand sanitizer and being wise, certainly. But ultimately, we know that in the Christian faith, there's this rock-solid security knowing that nothing happens on accident, but it's from the hand of God. This should remove a great deal of anxiety and worry and help us to satisfyingly enjoy our relationship with God, knowing that he is ultimately in control. So we see in the passage God's sovereignty in Christ's life, but also the success that Jesus starts to experience. Many people are opposing him, but not everyone. In verse 31, we're told that many believed in him. Many. It doesn't say that everyone, but many believed in him. So Jesus is starting to experience the success in ministry, salvations and conversion, and people are 
there's spiritual fruitfulness that's happening, and that really makes the Pharisees and religious leaders mad. So here comes the charge to have him arrested, but they simply cannot touch him yet. John Calvin says, When the ungodly do not hinder the progress of the gospel as they would wish, we ought to be sure that their efforts are ineffective because God has set his hand against them. There's all kinds of pressure right now on the Christian church in America, even private Christian organizations and schools, tax-exempt status, uh, uh, wanting to conform to the ways of the world, threatening the church. If we don't start doing this or that, then we're going to come after you. We're going to physically harm you. All throughout church history, we see that whenever the church suffers, the church grows. That nothing can happen this election or four years from now or next decade or next 30 decades apart from God's hand. We don't know what God is up to with everything, but we know that he is in control. And anyone who is opposing the church or opposing Christ, they're doing their efforts in vain. It may seem like they're winning at first, but ultimately God's upper hand will win. This bring us a tremendous amount of peace as we raise children and grandchildren in our generation that makes it seem like it's going downhill. Knowing that all things are in God's hands. Jesus continues to preach and teach. He says stuff like, I'm going back to the Father. You'll seek me, but you can't find me. Where I'm going, you can't come. People back then would have been like, what are you talking about? Like for us, we know he's talking about dying and rising and going back to God the Father where he is now ruling and reigning. But for people back then, they, they, that would not have been easily understandable, especially for John's original audience. Like a master storyteller, John is slowly revealing Christ and what he's about. And Jesus starts to get a little more specific when he talks about the satisfaction that he can provide. And once again, he cries out, it says. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. No doubt this points us back to Isaiah 55, 1, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah says, come. Jesus says, drink. Isaiah invites the reader to have their thirst quenched. But Jesus is the one who can actually quench your thirst. What Jesus is doing here is he's providing a metaphor for satisfaction and to having the deep longings of your heart fulfilled, which only comes through a personal relationship with him. It's the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. We said last week that it'll last seven or eight days. And on the last day, there's this pouring rite that a priest would do. He would go to a pool, get water, go to the temple, pour it out. Trumpets would blast. It was more dramatic than fireworks on the 4th of July. And everyone watched in and there was this huge event. Not to mention the Israelites were celebrating the rain from the harvest. So Jesus 
knowing that there's this water right thing going on and that they're celebrating the rain, he leverages this opportunity to make a lesson about the, the heart. Saying, you see that, you see the rain that you're enjoying of the crops? See this water pouring right? I, I want you to know that if anyone comes to me and believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. He says anyone, black or white, conservative, liberal, rich or poor, everyone in between, anyone is welcome in on this eternal life of knowing Christ. It simply comes through belief and faith in him. Jesus says, come and drink. Going is not good enough. If you're thirsty, you don't just grab a water bottle and look at it. Drink the water. It's not just being in the church context, although that's very good. It's not just associating with Christ, although that's good. But it's actually having a real, active, personal relationship with the living God. And Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you've ever spent time by a river, you know that they're deceptively fast. It doesn't look like they're really, it doesn't really look like it's moving until you jump in. And then it's like, whoa, even the best swimmers can, it's, it can be a scary thing. Rivers move faster than what we think. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you believe in me, I not only will fulfill the deep longings of your heart, of giving you the satisfying life that you were created for, but out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, you will be so satisfied that being in a relationship with Jesus and the blessings that you experience will not just stay in you, but will flow to other people around you. It's one of the biggest signs of knowing, are you happy in God? Are you satisfied in God? Are other people blessed by your efforts? Do other people sense that joy, that overflowing joy in God? One way to determine is through understanding, do the other people around you feel blessed by your presence or what you do? Tom Brady is an American football player. Played for the Patriots. I'm still bitter. I'm still processing that with God, you know, forgiveness. Plays for the Buccaneers now. After his third Super Bowl ring, he did this interview, and he said, uh, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like something is missing in my life? It's important to see here that, you know, hey, worldly success is good. I want to be successful. I'm sure those of you want to be successful too. Money, career, health, all those things can be good blessings, but if you look to it, and to find what you can only get from God, you're going to be super disappointed. You're going to feel empty, like something's always missing. If you're walking with Jesus, there should, there should be a real sense that you're happy in Christ, that you're joyful in Christ, right? Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that if you believe in him, he'll give you money and blessings and everything will always go well. And certainly, even if you have a strong Bible reading and prayer life and make church a priority, it's not like every single day is fully satisfying without fail. We have to be honest and admit that we live in a fallen world with Satan, our fleshly sin, 
um, enemies, so on and so forth, and that, that robs our joy sometimes. We can't expect to get in this life fully what we can only get in next, but by and large, if you're a Christ follower, you should be characterized by this overflowing satisfaction of what Christ has done for you. It's easy to find it in other things, like family, for example. I know family is a very big value here, very big value for me too. And, you know, certainly if you're not getting respect or you're not feeling loved or if your needs aren't being met, you should speak up, not just let people walk all over you, right? You're an image bearer of God and you should defend yourself sometimes and express your needs. That's true. At the same time, you know, we have to realize that our family is going to disappoint us. Kids, grandkids, our spouse, we enjoy them, we love them, we serve them. We can't live vicariously through them. We can't think, oh, if they become successful, then I'll feel like I'm somebody. We can't expect family to give us what only God can give us. Family, we're never, never meant to do that for you. Only God can give you what you're looking for. Others of you, it might be approval from what other people think. Fear of man is besetting sin of yours. In his book, uh, Tom Arnold, he's a comedian, he wrote a book called How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. And he said this, he says, most entertainers are in show business because they are looking for affirmation. The reason I wrote this book, he said, is because I wanted something out there so people would tell me they liked me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. You don't just drink water once, you need it daily. Without water for too long, you won't be able to survive. The same is true in your spiritual life. Sunday church is priority. There's nothing that's more important than church attendance, faithful church attendance, to hear from God's word and be with God's people. But throughout the week as well, Monday through Saturday, if you're serious about experiencing the satisfaction, there has to be time regularly with the living God through his word, through prayer. After hearing what Jesus had to say, the crowds continued to be divided over him. And some were saying, he must be a prophet, he must be a king, what's going on? And their ignorance continues. Because in verse 42, they said, wait, I thought that Christ was going to be from Bethlehem. Where's Jesus from? Bethlehem. They, they would say, I thought he was going to be a king, a descendant of King David. Jesus is, he is from Bethlehem. Shows that they don't really know what they're talking about. They're being ignorant. And the officers try to arrest him. They can't. They go back to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are like, wait, what's going on? We told you to arrest him. We don't like this guy. People are starting to believe in him. He's a threat. He's a threat to our reign here. How come you didn't arrest him? And the, the officers said, we've never heard a man speak like this before. Usually when a manager tells an employee to go do something... Uh, they come back and they didn't do it. There's often an excuse or, or something that happens. It could be a good one. It could be a bad one. Here, they, uh, miraculously, as one commentator says, they, they just, they didn't make any excuses. They said, we've never seen the man speak like this. This is coming in a day where many of the religious leaders had their head buried in notes. They just read citations and said the same thing over and over again. But Jesus comes on the scene and engages the heart. He says fresh content. He has part of the Old Testament memorized. He's eloquent. He's captivating. We've never seen anyone speak like this before, they say. 
Pharisees enter the scene, some of the religious leaders of that day, they memorized the whole Old Testament law, or mo most of it. They're pretty arrogant. A lot of them are, not all of them. Um, Paul says elsewhere in Scripture that knowledge puffs up. So people who are really smart or have a lot of knowledge, but it hasn't engaged their heart and they don't really obey, tend to look down on other people because they think they're better than other people. And this was the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees ask, have you also been deceived? The irony there is that the Pharisees were deceived. Because they didn't recognize who Jesus was. And there's so much irony towards the end of this passage because the Pharisees ask him, have, they say, hey, have any of the Pharisees ever believed in this guy? The, they said the crowd is accursed because they don't know the law. The irony continues because Nicodemus, a Pharisee, is about to speak up. So the Pharisees are like, no Pharisees believe in this guy. And then John, like a skilled writer, reveals Nicodemus, a Pharisee, speaks up for him. You can remember Nicodemus from chapter 3, where Jesus told him that he needed to be born again, which means believing in Jesus, coming to Christ, believing in him. And Nicodemus actually defends Christ. And he says, isn't there a law that shows that you have to have a procedural hearing before arresting someone? Nicodemus is calling them out on their bluff. If you have manipulative people in your life or bullies, people who try to walk all over you and you call them out on their bluff and their argument, they don't argue anymore. They don't attack the argument. They attack you. Because they know they're wrong. But they don't have the humility to admit they're wrong. And they keep trying to run over you. So they, they, they forget about the argument. It's about you. It's personal now. It's hard to deal with these people. And Pharisees are like this. So the Pharisees are saying, are you from Galilee too? They're, they're being condescending. And they, they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Another way of saying, search the Old Testament and see that no prophets come from Galilee. Once again, their deception and ignorance is on display because at least two prophets came from Galilee, Jonah and Nahum and possibly Elijah. The Pharisees said these, this crowd is a curse because they don't know the law. But at the end of the passage, they reveal their hypocrisy because they themselves don't know it as well as they thought. The irony of this passage of Christ preaching and teaching, the opposition that he felt and faced at the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the highlights of the book of John. Some of you might be wondering if we should celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. The answer is no. We don't need to do this or have to do this because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And now whenever we take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, bread signifying Christ's body on the cross and the juice, it signifies Christ's blood. And every time we come together, when we're able to do it in the appropriate seasons, we have a feast. No longer is this just a seven day of the week thing. This is regularly where the people of God get together. And they remember Christ's broken body on the cross and his blood shed for those who would believe in him. This also points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Isaiah. Which talks about the book of Revelation. Where this big feast at the end with God and God's people, God's people only. Not everyone is invited, only those who have trusted in Christ. And there will be this rich wine and meat 
and singing and a celebration with God and his God's people. So every time we take communion, we remember what's going to come in the end for those who belong in Christ. Perfection. No more sin. No more sorrow. And perfect satisfaction forever. I was talking to one of my friends in college. I remember this conversation. It was almost a decade ago. And at this time in my walk with Christ, I had been baptized in high school, came to faith in junior high, waited to be baptized. And, you know, when you get to undergraduate secular university, there's all kinds of temptations. There's, you know, uh, sin and sensuality is just apparent and everywhere. So I was so fired up for my newfound faith and growth wanting to take theology and the Bible seriously. But there was also this other world that was within my fingertips. I had my friend Trevor, who was a godly man, one of my best friends today. And without him, I don't think I would have survived college in the correct way. And it was a cold, cold winter day in Maryville, and we were in a cold car driving. Finals was coming up. We were stressed out, just contemplating what direction in life I wanted to take. And I asked him a question, and I, you know, I was talking to him about his faith in Christ and this question of satisfaction that a lot of college students often ask. I said, do you always feel satisfied in Jesus? And he said, no, but I know the source of filling. I thought that was a good word, an honest word. Saying, no, I... Because of the world, the flesh, the devil, and temptations, and my own sin, and the hardships of life. I can't say I'm on a mountaintop experience every day, and perhaps it wasn't meant to be that way. Perhaps it was meant that we would be more dependent on God, and we'd look for that nonstop mount, mountaintop experience in the new heavens and new earth. He said, no, I don't feel it, but I know the source of feeling. It's a good word for us this morning. You may not have walked in this morning super satisfied, but if you're in Christ, you know the source of filling. Let me encourage you to draw near to him on a regular basis. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we... Um, we want to be happy in Christ. We, we don't want to um, begrudgingly go in and out and just think about, um, to, we don't want to see you as a killjoy because, Lord, we know that you're not a killjoy. We ask for a sense of your peace and presence. And, uh, Lord, would you just divinely, supernaturally give us this favor and blessing upon our souls? to experience satisfaction in Christ. Help us not to envy the ways of the wicked, as one psalmist says. And um, Lord, help us during the hard times with the pandemic and all these cultural events and surgeries and death and everything else. It's just hard. Help us to be people committed to you. Trust that one day you will wipe away every tear and that we don't have to worry about sin or suffering anymore. Lord, please provide the satisfaction that you alone can provide. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.